We begin a new series tonight focused on one of the confessions of our faith. Baptists have, since our founding, basically been known as people of the book. And there's a good reason for that. Um, Baptists started because people read their Bibles and realized that some of the things that they were seeing in their churches were not right, not true to Scripture, not valid according to God's Word. And so seeking to be valid, seeking to follow the ways of Christ, Baptists were born. Now, I'm not here to give you a history lesson in the Baptist church. I'm also not here to profess that uh, I am the greatest theologian and therefore will expound to you all of the mysteries of God. However, I do believe it's important for us to take a look at the past and take a look at the creeds, the confessional statements that we have made. There's a, a debate over whether the Baptist faith and message is a creed or a confession. Um, I guess it depends on how you use it. Creeds tend to be uh, exclusive statements, statements of you have to adhere to this in order to do certain things or have a certain position or be funded in certain ways or those kinds of things. And then there's the confessional view, which is more, much more of these are the things that we believe and we would like to know that you believe them with us. It's difficult because in some ways, Baptist history has been defined by this. In 1922, E.Y. Mullins stood before the Northern Baptist Convention as its moderator. A, a motion was brought to the floor. A couple of years earlier, the Southern Baptist had agreed to start to look at just what statements can we make that would unite Baptists around the world and give us a common document by which we could all affirm that this is generally, maybe not specifically in every case, maybe not in the most minute detail, but these are the general beliefs of Baptists. The Southern Baptist Convention was moving forward with it. In May of that year, they had already agreed to start the process of making such a document and of presenting it to other Baptists around the world in hopes that we could join together in approving what it said. But it was not to be with the Northern Baptist. You see, in 1845, the two had split, not over doctrinal differences, mostly over the questions of slavery and missions, Is slavery right, and how should we do missions? Should individuals form societies, or should we work together as churches to fund the mission work in cooperation. That was really the disagreement. But in 1922, the gap that separated Northern and Southern Baptists grew, and it grew over the question of confession. The Northern Baptists refused to adopt or even consider adopting a confessional statement, and it split the two apart. And you can see what has happened in the meantime. The Northern Baptist, now known as the American Baptist Convention has had a lot of difficulties. Difficulties with liberalism, difficulties with holding missionaries accountable to what the churches believe, difficulties in their administration and in their organization, in the way in which they conduct missions. 
Now, that's not to say that Southern Baptists have been perfect. We have been far from perfect. But we've not had some of the issues that they've had. Southern Baptists are the only main denomination in the United States to start down the road of liberalism and return back to its bearings. None other have done that. The reason is because of confession. The statement that we are going to read over these next, I don't know, 18, 19, 20 weeks, something like that, is a big part of the reason why. Originally written in 1925, the Baptist faith and message was designed to be that general thing that all Baptists could agree on. In 1963, it was revised. And then again in 2000, we're going to study the 2000 revision. I'll make a couple of notes of things that have changed along the years. We'll talk a little bit about the history, about why Baptists feel the way that we do about certain things. We'll talk a little bit of theology. We'll talk a lot about scripture. But I think the place to begin is, well, with the statement itself. So this is Article 1 of the Baptist Faith and Message. Do not stand. This is not God's word. This is merely what men have tried to put down to say, this is what we believe. Okay? So let me make that clear. This is not God's word. Don't stand. However, I believe that it's true to God's word. The Holy Bible, it starts. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and it's God's revelation of himself to man. It is the perfect treasure for divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Pray with me as we seek to open our Bibles and explore why we believe what we believe about his word. Father, your scripture, well, the psalmist put it best. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, illuminate us with your word. Help us to understand not only what this statement says, but the truth about your word. Help us understand why we believe in your Bible and how that belief can make the difference. In Jesus' name, amen. This statement is an attempt to both concisely and precisely talk about how Baptists view the scripture. Now, there's a lot of different views on Scripture. And for the most of the history of the Christian church, the views have been, well, within a pretty narrow field. Throughout the patriarchs uh, of, of the apostles and the early disciples of them, through the years of the medieval uh, monks and the scholars in Middle Ages, in through the reformers, and a recovery of the gospel on into the modern missions movement, pietism, all of, almost all of human history, all of Christian history at least, people have viewed the scriptures within a relatively narrow framework. It's God's word. 
Now, maybe you take it a little bit differently than someone else does. Maybe you're a little more allegorical in your understanding, or maybe you, you lay out a much more uh, historical, grammatical understanding of the Scripture, seeking to understand what the author said and what he meant originally, and then, and then apply that to today. Maybe you're looking at things like uh, the context and the genre of Scripture and things of that sort. Maybe you're looking at it from a textual point of view, like, how, how is the text constructed and, and, and what might the author be trying to do with that? But for the most part, most Christians, until around the early 1800s, most Christians would have said, this is God's word. Maybe you elevate tradition. Maybe you believe there's more to his word than just the Old and New Testaments. Maybe you accept the Apocrypha as scripture. Maybe not. But all in all, most Christians would agree that if it's Bible, it's definitely God's word. And then comes along this thing called higher criticism that questions everything. Did God really say is almost the theme of higher criticism. The problems introduced were not small. Can we really believe this? Does it really have to be that God created the world? Or is this just metaphor that really everything evolved, but you know God's kind of responsible for it all anyway? And so does it, isn't Genesis just really just a metaphor? Are you sure Moses wrote those first five books? Because there's a lot of strange stuff that it almost looks like multiple authors. How he uses different names for God, words, things in different ways, in different places. Are you sure one man wrote all this? And what about his death? How did he write about his death? Wait a minute, this gospel writer says that there was one thief on the cross downplaying Jesus, but this one says there were two, that they were both doing it. That's not, that's not consistent. That's not right. And so what you end up having are these questions about what is the nature of Scripture. And Baptists from the very beginning have always held to a position of Scripture that says that Scripture is God's Word and it is inerrant and infallible. And this statement shows that. It begins, uh, there's really two aspects of this. Two ways in which Baptists think about the scriptures. The first is that the scriptures serve as a revelation of God to man. In other words, we know God because of the scripture. And that's in the very first thing that it says. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired. It has God for its author. Now, think about that for a second. Written by men, but authored by God. How does that work? There have been all kinds of theories over the years. We don't claim to know. But as Baptists, we know that God authored it, and he used men to write it. We don't believe they were in a trance and only wrote down exactly what God told them. We don't believe that men were fanciful and God said, well, I guess I got to take it. I told him to write, and, you know, he came up with some cockamamie mess. I guess, I guess we'll have to put that in there too. No, we believe that God, has authored the scripture and he's used the minds and the pens, the attitudes and personalities of individual men. 66 books written by more than 50 authors that we know of over a course of 1,500 years. And God is the author of all of it. Now, what does the Bible say about this? Does the Bible have anything to say about this? Oh yeah, it does. Exodus chapter 24 is where I want to start. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. 
This is where scripture begins. God speaks to a man and he writes it down. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and it goes on to explain what he did from there. But that first line, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. That's what we believe happened with scripture. God speaks to an individual and he writes it down and that's what this book is. See, that's what separates this book from every other book is that it's authored by God. Men may have written it, but God authored it. We, uh, we, we see this in other scriptures as well. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 18 and 19. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. So let me, let me get you into Deuteronomy 17. God has told Israel, I am to be your king, but you're going to reject me as king. When you do, let me tell you what the king that you put in my place ought to be like. He doesn't need to have lots of money. He doesn't need to have lots of horses and chariots. He doesn't need to, to strong arm the people with heavy tax burdens. He doesn't need to have lots and lots of possessions and, and wives. No, he, he could only marry one, not many. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, I found this was amazing. Look at what he tells him to do. He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by Levitical priest. What God says is when you get a king, his number one job is to write down my words. Make a copy of the book for himself. That's not all. Number two job, verse 19 and this isn't going to work now. There it is. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life. Now that he's written it, he needs to read it over and over and over again. That he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statues and doing them. God says, you're going to get a king? He needs to be a man of my book. He needs to write my book. Make sure, get the priest to check it. Make sure it's right. You don't want him writing crazy stuff in there. And then he's to read it every day so that he'll follow it. What God is after is not just Israel being his nation. He's interested in the Israelites being his people. Here's a big difference. You see, a man can rule a nation and not care one bit for the nation, but he can't rule a people that way. The importance of the word of God is shared not only in the law, but in the prophets as well. Jeremiah chapter 36. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Now this is a common thing. The Lord speaking to his prophet. All throughout the prophets you find this. Even before the prophets, Moses is a prophet because God speaks to him and he declares God's words to the people. Joshua is a prophet because God speaks to him and he declares God's word to the people. Even though Samuel is called a judge, he is also a prophet in the sense that God speaks to him and he speaks God's words to the people. This idea of hearing from God and delivering that message to others, it, that's the prophetic imperative. God has spoken, I must also speak. But sometimes the prophet not only speaks, but writes. Verse 2, take a scroll, it says. This isn't working. That's okay. I have the Bible right in front of me. Take a scroll and write on it. All the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke you, from the days of Josiah until today 
So that's what he does. He, he actually turns to Baruch, his, his scribe, and he says, write down everything I've been saying. So he dictates it to Baruch. Baruch goes and he reads it in front of the people. Some of the leaders of the people hear him and they call him into uh, some chambers and they say, what, what are you reading? And he said, he said, this book, uh, this is all the things that God has spoken to Jeremiah that he's declared. And they say, read it for us. And he reads it for them. And they look at each other and they realize, oh no, th- this, this is not going to be good. So they say, all right, you go back to Jeremiah and you'll hide. We're going to hide this book elsewhere because if the king sees this, he's going to kill you. Well, they found it, took it to the king. Someone else found it and took it to the king. And as this person is reading it, the king says, read it. And as this person is reading it, every time he gets a couple of columns over, because Hebrew is written more in columns, almost like Chinese, but not quite. But there's several columns on the page of the scroll. As he's reading it, the king literally is cutting off sections of the scroll and throwing it in the fire. So as it's being read, it's being cut off and destroyed in the fire. So what does Jeremiah do? Well, verse 27. Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. What's he going to say? Take another scroll. Do it again. (laughs) Write it all down again. My word has to be written down. I know the king destroyed it. I know, I know. Moses coming down from the mountain. He's got 10 commandments. He sees the people worshiping a, a golden calf that Aaron has made. What does he do? He throws down the tablets and destroys them. You know what God then later does? He says, come back up the mountain. I got to give you a new copy. My word needs to be written down. See, it's one thing to hear God's word. It's another thing to be able to pick up a book and read it and then pick it up again later and read it again and then pick it up again later and read it again. Britain, the British brag because their constitution isn't written down. Our constitution is written down. Now, nobody follows it like they should, but it does help to have it written down. Habakkuk, I love the way this is described. I almost picture this as kind of a a mission statement for preachers, at least for writers, The Lord said to me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets. Don't write it convolutedly. Don't write it in some kind of ancient script that no one can understand. It ain't a riddle. It ain't a puzzle for someone to figure out. Just write the vision and make it plain. Write it down easy so that the one who's reading it may run. You want him to be able to go. The one who's going to deliver that message, you want him to be able to run. Don't make it lengthy. You can't run with a book this big. Believe me, I've tried. You can't run like that. Make it plain, simple, easy to understand, so it can be known. But nothing, there's nothing in the New Testament about the scripture being a revelation of God to men. (laughs) All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. It all comes from God. 2 Peter 1. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. You see, the prophets were looking ahead at Christ. 
They were looking ahead at the Messiah and they were saying true things, but they didn't quite understand it and it was kind of muddled in mystery. But now that now that we have Christ, now that we've seen him, now that we've seen him die and raised from the dead and appear to us as resurrected and ascended into the clouds, and now that we have his Holy Spirit to teach us all things, now we have it more fully confirmed. Now we know much better than they knew then, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. You see, this does not come from me eating fried chicken and having a weird dream. I don't know why old pastors that I've had would refer to fried chicken and crazy dreams. I don't know why the connection. Fried chicken's never given me bad dreams. Now tonight, I'm going to eat some fried chicken and God's going to say, oh really? (laughs) Check this one out. It doesn't come by us. You see, Scripture, if it came from us, it would be nuts. And we'd be nuts for believing it. But it doesn't come from us. It comes from God. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It's not like these guys are looking for God's word. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God is the one authoring this book. Not only is the scripture God's revelation to men, but it's also God's revelation for men. There we go. And it reveals a couple of things about God. It, it, it begins by revealing God's self. It reveals God's self to us. This is the way it's put in the Baptist faith and message. Come on. There we go. The Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is God's revelation of himself to man. That's where we began. And it's a good place to begin. In 1963, the Baptist Faith and Message said that it was a record of God's revelation. It's not that that's not true, but that's inadequate. You see, God just didn't say, well, I need some proof that I've revealed myself, so I'm going to write the Bible. No, God wrote the Bible to reveal himself. In fact, the last book of the Bible, the, the, the first sentence of it, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of this. The whole point of this book is to reveal God to us. Now, it does a lot more than that. That's really what it's getting at. If you miss God in all the Bible, I mean, what what his name appears what? Like, Yahweh appears, see if I can remember this correctly. It's been a long time since I looked this up. More than 6,000 times, I know, in all of Scripture. That's just that one name. You add in God, Elohim. You add in Lord, Adonai, Kurios in the Greek. Man, you get well over 15,000 mentions of God if you just look at all his names. You think he's trying to tell us something? I don't, I think he's trying to show us something. I think he's trying to show us him. It's God's revelation of himself. Genesis 5, uh, Genesis 35, excuse me, verse 7, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Jacob, running away from Esau, meets God and he builds an altar and he calls the place the house of God because that's where he met God. Isaiah talks about this, Isaiah Chapter 22, verse 14. There we go. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die. Boy, isn't that good news? 
<laughs> but did you catch the first part? The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. God is not a God that wants to remain hidden, shrouded in clouds of mystery. He reveals himself. He chooses to reveal himself to us. Amos. Amos, the farmer. He's not even a prophet. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. I'm, I'm just a guy just trying to just trying to make it work. Just trying to farm, and then God speaks to me, and I have to speak of what he says. But I'm not really a prophet. This is what he says. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. I, I would amend this verse and say to his people. You see, sometimes we may not understand how or why, but God always reveals himself. It may take a while. may not see him at first, but he's there. I mean, this is a God who can reveal himself in the story of Esther and his name not even be mentioned once in the entire book. That's just who he is. New Testament, Romans chapter 1. You know this passage. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in what? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. I'm going to do dances up here in a minute trying to get it to work. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? Also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. It reveals God's self. God's spirit revealing who he is, written for us in this book. Not only does it reveal God's self, it also reveals God's standard. This is the way it's put in the Baptist faith and message. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. I like that. Perfect treasure of divine instruction. Very quickly. We already read uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16. You can see verses uh, uh, 15 to 17 as well. And it talks about this. However, we're going we're gonna to skip a little bit here. More from the Baptist faith and message. It has God for its author salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. This was because of liberalism. This idea that truth without any mixture of error, that comes from that liberalistic sort of, of trend toward disregarding the accuracy of the scriptures and only taking things as spiritual meanings or, or disregarding the accuracy of the scripture and only taking it as metaphorical only taking it as just general principles for us to live by. No, the scripture is not a book of principles. It's a book about God. And it not only reveals God, it reveals his standard. And so it better be without error. Because how do you know you can trust the God that it talks about if on another page you see something that's blatantly false? I mean, that just doesn't add up. Jesus, I love Jesus. 
Sometimes he can take the most complicated things and make them so simple. Therefore, wait, that's, oh wait, hold on. Sorry. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. Jesus didn't say that. The Baptist faith and message says that. Jesus, though, says it real simple. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is true. I don't even have, I don't even have to preach about that. That's so clear. I'll muddle it up if I preach about it. Your word is true. It also says this. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. In other words, it reveals the principles of God while also remaining forever. Psalm 19. Not 119, though it says a lot of this same kind of stuff. But Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Psalm 119.89, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus says, but my words will not pass away. You get the point? No, they also set the standard. Romans 15.4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Remember we talked about earlier that, that hearing the stories of people who are willing to suffer and die for their faith makes us more bold in, in advancing the gospel ourselves? But not only that, hearing the stories of those who have gone before us help us have confidence. Well, you know, it's funny. The biblical authors don't even bother to prove what they're saying is true. Now, if they thought it needed proof, they would have given proof. If God thought, there's going to be a lot of people doubting this, I, I, I better put some evidence. They just write it. They just say, this is what God says. Isn't that interesting? You see, it was all written, not just for us, but in part for us. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is God's revelation of himself and his standard. But most importantly, it reveals his son. You see, everything else, everything else revolves around Jesus. The entire scripture all points to Jesus. Baptist faith, the message says, all scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law was just pointing to Jesus, the only one who could fulfill them. And beginning, you had to know I was going here, with Moses and all the prophets. He's on the road to uh, the road to Emmaus, and there's two disciples, and he walks up, and they don't recognize him, and they're talking about the events of the day. Does this story sound familiar? It should sound familiar. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, as a preacher, I wish he had written down how he did that because that would make my job really easy, wouldn't it? Uh, but alas, I have to do the work of discovering it for myself. That's okay. That, that works good for me. 
Not only there, uh, what, like 17 verses later? Then he said, to them, he's, in the up, he's in the room now. There's, there's disciples in the room that those two disciples on the road to Emmaus have run back to Jerusalem and tell them what's going on. And suddenly Jesus appears to them, freaks them out, tells them not to be afraid, and that's what makes them afraid. And then, and then eats in front of them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. What does he do? He opens up the book and he shows them in the book how it all leads to him. Finally, last, last verse. If I can get it to come up. There we go. John 5.39 you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. He's talking to Pharisees here. And it is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures that we have in front of us are God's revelation, both of himself, his, sta his standard, and his son, revealed for us. I think the way the Baptist faith and message is pretty, it's not really Baptist. It's really little o orthodox. Christian. It's something that all Christians should agree on. This is God's word. And now that we have firmly established God's word, now we can know who God is. So next week we'll begin article two. We won't finish it in one week. I mean, that was like two sentences. <laughs> Not really two sentences, but that was a paragraph and it took me 45 minutes. So we're definitely not going to finish article two next week, but we'll begin to explore who God is. Again, it's not God's word, this statement, but I think it's a pretty faithful representation of it. So I hope that in this study, you're blessed as I am, as I get, get to dig in a little bit deeper and explore why we believe what we believe. Pray with me. Father, we have seen in your scriptures your revelation to us, but your revelation for us as well. You've revealed yourself. You have revealed to us your character, your nature in this word. You have revealed to us your standards, what you expect of us. And you have revealed to us your son, the one who meets those standards for us and who brings us into relationship with you. Father, may we always find in these scriptures not only who you are, not only what you've done, but who you're making us to be. Thank you for your word. Bless it as we read it and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.